July 8th, 1741, the most famous sermon in American history was preached. It was in Enfield, Connecticut, and it was a sermon that some say galvanized something called the First Great Awakening. And copies of it were made and sent all over New England, all over America at the time. This is before the Revolutionary War. And this sermon was a long and heavy sermon. And at the end of it, people who witnessed it said that there were people lying on the ground, crying and shrieking. Some call this sermon evangelism by terrorism. The sermon was titled Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. It was performed by Jonathan Edwards. And I'm going to read you a snippet of it. Just because it's going to be fun. <laughs> by the way, we don't have uh, notes on the screen today. It's just a glitch thing. Just like the whole day. But you're probably going to be glad this isn't on the screen. The God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire. This God abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as, a, as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of purer eyes than to bear to have, to have you in his sight. You are 10,000 times so ab abominable in his eyes as the most hateful venomous serpent is in ours. That was part of the 90 minutes of the sermon. God depicted as a sadistic juvenile dangling spiders over a fire. Is this true of God? Is this true? <laughs> At this point, I just want to clarify. I, want to, I don't want to pigeonhole Jonathan Edwards here. This was the most famous sermon of his, but it's not totally representative of all of his sermons, Okay. He wasn't always terrorizing his congregation um, into, with these lurid depictions of hell. And it may be unfair that this is his most famous sermon, uh, but the problem is, is that he did preach the sermon. <laughs> he did preach this. And it's left its mark on the, on the religious imagination of our country. In fact, people study this sermon for creative writing in some schools around the country. It's generally regarded as one of the most important sermons in American history, and this is a tragedy because this sermon has this vision of God that is just heavy and brutal and vindictive. Now, 
I am very aware that there are sermons that I have preached (laughs) that I doubt have totally represented God well 100% of the time. I I think it's fair to say, and Randy's kind of laughing in the back, I think for those of us who teach the Bible, it is a very uh, difficult thing because you don't, I mean, maybe 80% of the things I say are in the ballpark. And some of you are like, well, I want to go somewhere there 100% things are in the ballpark. Well, you're never going to find that. And so as a pastor, I can kind of sympathize a bit with Jonathan Edwards because his context was really crazy and chaotic. He had this very stubborn group of people, I guess, that were his church. And so I can sympathize with being fed up with a group of people that you have to talk to every... I'm just kidding. I'm I'm not... But still, here's the question. Is it true? Does God hate sinners? Is the heart of God really a volcano of seething rage? Is the living God really an angry God? Now, I want you to hold on to those questions. It's going to be a little bit of tension here for a bit. I want you to hold on to those questions. And then I want to remind you we're in this study of this ancient letter 2,000 years ago to a small group of house churches in Rome. And we have been doing this letter backwards because... We wanted to really make sure that we had the context of why Paul wrote the letter as as best as we could figure it out. Because there's so much in this letter that if we were to read it through our Western American modern individualistic lens, we could get things wrong. Paul wrote this to a community that is fractured. A group of people who all believe in Jesus and follow Jesus, and yet one group has got like this heavy, uh, Torah-observant, religious following, still following the Yahweh Old Testament uh, version of God through Jesus. And then there's this other group of people that know nothing of that. And they are just being welcomed into the love of God. And there's tension there. And there's a little bit of animosity there. And God has been faithful to the Jewish people through Jesus. But he's also opened up the covenant to all these people who are not Jewish. And so we've got to come to grips with the way we read some of these things in the Bible so that our context, that we just get a fresher perspective. And we've been reading it backwards to learn the ethnic and the social, economic and the political and all the religious stuff that's happening during the time. And we left off last week talking about the benefits of the gospel. Remember, Paul wrote this letter because he he wants these two groups, these factions to be united and to live at peace with each other in the midst of the Roman Empire. 
And he wants them to be united because he says that the only way the gospel gets further, the only way the announcement of who God is in Jesus gets expanded is if the people that follow this Jesus are united and are, are, are experiencing that connection together. And so in chapter 1, verse 16, we talked about the benefits of the gospel. And Paul said this, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from the first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. So we talked about this last week, God's covenant plan to make everything whole came through Jesus. And one of the benefits was the power to create a community out of two very different fractured groups. And that's why this is the beginning of this letter to this house church. They know they're fractured. And in walks Phoebe from Centrea with a letter from Paul. And she stands up to read it. Now, let me pray before I jump into where we're reading today, because this is a heavy passage. God, part of our journey is to wrestle with who you are, how others have interpreted who you are, who we are. And God, we all find ourselves coming to this place this morning with different religious baggage and different pictures of who you are. So God, this morning, we, just, we ask for your spirit to just carefully guide us and carefully guide my words as we unpack unpack this letter. We pray these things in your name. Amen. This passage I'm about to read you is known in Christian terms as a clobber passage. It's a passage that has been used and misused throughout church history. I have a feeling that Jonathan Edwards pulled a little bit of his sermon from this. And people have been beaten over the head with it. So buckle up. <laughs> Let's read Romans 1, 18 into chapter 2. I'm going to read just a big stretch of words, uh, verses. It's not going to be on the screen. If you want to follow along on your phone or in your Bible, go for it. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what, what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. 
For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts, to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, men, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do, uh, they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. You, therefore, have no excuse you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human, pass judgment on them and do the same things, you do, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience? not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will repay each person according to what they have done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile, but glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile, for God does not show favoritism. Whew. All right. Happy Memorial Day. One of the things that I think many of you are thinking in your head right now, is this going to be a conversation about human sexuality? No. That is a big conversation. It's a very culturally uh, appropriate conversation in this moment, but this is, I'm not going to spend the time this morning doing that. 
My guess is many of you have feelings and thoughts and wonder, like everybody, where, do we, where does this church stand? Um, we're not going to get into that today. This isn't an issue of that today. The issue is bigger, and there's a huge uh, context to what's going on here. I'm not afraid to have that conversation. Um, I would love to have that conversation with anybody. Um, and we will maybe have more of those conversations in the future, but today is not that day. What I want to make sure we do today is to keep the conversation within the context of the letter up to this point. Okay? The context, what I just read to you, was one flow of thought. Though you have a Bible that has verses and chapters and even stupid little, little things that tell you what you're about to read which weren't in the Bible. Um, this, is one f- this letter is one flow of thought. Okay? So what Paul is doing here is he's, he's actually doing something really beautiful as he's setting up the conversation for what does it look like to live in peace in the middle of empire together as a Jewish follower of Jesus and a Gentile follower of Jesus. And it seems, on first reading, a devastating critique of humanity. It seems like this horrific, like brutal, um, you know, uh, indictment of all of humanity and how humanity has uh, devolved over time. Um, But what if it's something else going on here, too? Now, keep the conflict in your mind between the weak and the strong. In this conversation we've been having, Paul uses these terms, the weak and the strong, later on in the letter, which we read backwards, so now you know the context. The weak are the Jewish followers of Jesus who feel they, need, they still need to observe Torah, and, and they feel like they're in this special place between them and God, and the strong are people that are not Torah-observant, um, but that still follow Jesus. And so let me ask you, who do you think Paul is aiming this part of the letter towards? The weak. Paul is doing something really interesting here. This is five house churches who are in the middle of empire. They're in the middle of Rome. Rome is a, we talked about this early in the, the series, Rome is a cafeteria buffet of religious idol worship. You could literally worship anything to get anything. And part of that religious worship had so much going on with temple worship and idol worship, and there was sexual immorality involved, and there was so much going on behind the scenes. And you are, pretend like you are a Uh, a Torah-observant, Jesus-following Jewish Christian. And imagine this letter is being read out loud and performed by Phoebe. And the part about the wrath of God and the lists of all those sins are being read and certain people in the room, imagine you're one of them and you're like, yes, preach it, Paul, right? Like, and they're amening, you know, I'm kind of glad we're not a church that's like, amen, you know, but like, like people are like, yes. Yeah. (laughs) People are just pumped. 
And they're reading all that stuff. And then it gets to, unfortunately, where our Bibles stop chapter 1 and start chapter 2. There's no break there. And all these things are being said. And the Jewish Christians are like, come on, keep it going, Paul. And then he reads this. He, Phoebe reads this out loud. You, therefore, have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself because you pass judgment. You who pass judgment do the same things. This is called a rope-a-dope. This is called a setup, and this is a boxing term where you set somebody up and then you throw the haymaker. Okay? This is Paul masterclass in getting people on his side of an argument and then pulling the rug out. This is called um, a diatribe, and in Roman literature in letter writing, a diatribe is not like what you and I consider a diatribe, like someone just venting. A diatribe is actually when the writer proposes an argument and sets up a kind of pseudo-argument partner, okay? And that pseudo-argument partner is somebody that some of the, argument, uh, the audience agrees with. And that's what Paul's doing in the first part of chapter 2. He is actually confronting this, this person that believes all these things he's just said. And that's why when we look at, when we dive into the Greek of Romans 2, that part that says, you therefore have no excuse is actually singular. The whole letter, whenever Paul says you, it's a y'all. Except for here, which is you singular. And scholars have been like, what is going on here? What is Paul? Who's Paul talking to? He's talking to an actual person. But many people believe that they studied letters in the Roman world and argument letters and diatribes, they've actually realized that Paul is actually setting up an argument towards a very religious, very heavy-handed uh, mindset of the people, of the, of the Jewish followers of Jesus. Now imagine this letter being read out loud and you're hearing this and then this happens to you. You thought Paul was on your side as a Jewish follower of Jesus. You're like, oh, we got a letter from Paul. We're going to set those Gentile Christians right. It's time. You guys make sure you're here for this, right? This is a, a, Old Testament. This happens in the Old Testament with the prophet Nathan and David. So David has, um, he, he's been doing some bad stuff. And in 2 Samuel chapter 12, Nathan confronts David. And I'm going to read this to you. This is a, it's, a, it's a wild story. It says, The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except a little ewe lamb he had bought. 
He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who came to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who came to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then David said to, uh, Nathan said to David, you are that man. It's this beautiful way of conf- confrontation. Can you imagine being a prophet, Nathan the prophet, in the presence of the king of Israel, and you tell that story? I mean, that is punk rock, right? That is the definition of punk. And this is what is happening here in this letter. Phoebe's reading this letter out loud is arousing their judgmental hearts towards people that are not in their camp. And Paul is settling their minds on the idea that other human beings are really messed up. But then Paul throws this haymaker and he says that the Torah-following Jewish people are just as broken and needing of rescue. And then we get a little bit later in the letter what you know as Romans 3.23, it says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And it's just this picture of, hey, guess what? You're all in the same boat. We're all in the same boat. Now, I'm going to take a quick detour because I think we need to talk about something. And that is the metaphor of the wrath of God. I don't think we talk about this enough in churches. Um... One of the main challenges talking about God is the problem of metaphor. It's one of the main challenges all throughout Scripture. Earlier this year, we had a conversation about how to read Scripture. And it was hard because I think it kind of touched some places in many of us that was like, whoa, what is he saying? And when I talked about reading Scripture literarily, Versus literally, some uh, of us were like, what, what does that mean? Does that mean things aren't really literal in Scripture? It's not what I'm saying. I'm saying some things are literal in Scripture, but some things are clearly literary, meaning there are images and metaphors to who God is. And so we cannot talk about God without using metaphors. And it's the only option we have at times when speaking of a God who is supremely transcendent. And so, but to literalize, so here's the thing, to literalize, literalize a metaphor is really dangerous because it it can do one of two things. It can create an idol or it can formulate, in a sense, an error. Okay? For example... 
God is not a man. God is not a rock. God is not a tower. God is not a fortress. God is not a hen. God is not a husband. God is not a mother. God is not a warrior. God is not a charioteer. God is not a farmer. God is not a king. Even though the Bible uses all these metaphors to talk about God. So we can use these metaphors, but we can't literalize the metaphor. You with me? Okay. So the wrath of God is a biblical metaphor. And we use this to describe the very real consequence we suffer from trying to go through life against the grain of God, against the grain of God's love for this world and for us. Uh, There's a Canadian theologian named Brad Jersek, and he writes this, and it would be on the screen, but we don't have those today. The wrath of God is understood as divine consent to our self-destructive defiance. I'm going to read that again. The wrath of God is understood as divine consent to our self-destructive defiance. Um, When we sin against the two great commands of loving God and loving others, we suffer the inevitable consequences of acting against love. We can call this the wrath of God if you like. Scripture does. But it doesn't mean that God is literally losing his temper. Okay? God no more literally loses his temper as God sleeps. When the Bible says that God, the Lord, awoke from his sleep... That is a metaphor. God does not sleep. God does not fly off the handle. The hard part is, is we have father imagery baked into us from our childhoods. Some of us had really heavy-handed fathers. I don't say us because my dad's in the room. We're okay. You don't have to go confront my dad about being a heavy-handed father. I'm just some of us had difficult childhoods or you didn't know your father or your dad was heavy-handed. And and sometimes when we think of Father God, we have these, oh, I got this thing. I've got this, this broken image of what a father is that is holding you back. And it's really, it's a real thing. But literalizing a divine metaphor always leads to error. And we, easily, we can easily acknowledge that God is literally not a rock and literally not a hen. But we have a hard time with this divine anger piece. And here's the deal. There's even hints in the Old Testament, I know, where it looks like God's angry all the time. Okay? There's literally places in the Old Testament that help us with this. Psalm chapter 7, there's three verses that sound really heavy, and then there's three that kind of, well, let me read them to you. Psalm 7, verse 11, God is a righteous judge, a God who displays his wrath every day. If he does not relent, he will sharpen his sword, he will bend and string his bow, he has prepared his deadly weapons, he makes ready his flaming arrows. What are those? Are, did I just read you guys metaphor? I think I did, right? 
These three verses laden with metaphor make it sound as if God is directing his retribution upon sinners and he's got personal indignation. And the next three verses kind of help us, give us a hint of what this actually means. Verse 14, whoever is pregnant with evil conceives trouble and gives birth to disillusionment. Whoever digs a hole and scoops it out falls into the pit they have made. The trouble they cause recoils on them. Their violence comes down on their own heads. So these verses, what we might think of as God sharpening his sword and getting his arrows ready for us, on a deeper level is like this reciprocal kind of consequence of seeking to harm others. It's uh, sinners fall into their own diabolical schemes, right? It's like these traps that we set for ourselves, these boomerangs that come back to hit us, is what Psalm 7 is talking about. But I want to make something really, really clear, just to make sure that you understand where I'm coming from. God's wrath is a real biblical metaphor. And it doesn't make the consequences for our sin any less real or painful. The revelation that God's single disposition towards humanity remains one of unconditional love. God loves, that's his nature. And and we're not exempt from the consequences of going against his love. When we live against the grain of God's love, we actually suffer the self-inflicted consequences of it. This is the wrath of God. God is not waiting to strike you down on the golf course. Okay? And we must not literalize this metaphor. We end up saying things like, God abhors you. Like a Jonathan Edwards sermon, or God hates you. This, think of terms of Jesus, okay? Jesus uh, brought to us this beautiful picture, this parable of the prodigal son. And uh, it's kind of like we are the prodigal son. We asked God for our inheritance. We came to God and said, no, no, no. Just give us our inheritance. Uh, give us the earth to rule. And God said, it's, if you knock yourself out, here you go. I'm going to just get out of the way. Not to enjoy it with him, together with him, but to squander it on ourselves and in distance from God. And God generously gives us our wish. This is the story of Genesis 3. But who is God? Who, Who really is God? Who is God? What is he like? The scriptures tell us that God is revealed to us in the person of Jesus. Over and over again, the writers of the New Testament tell us that Jesus is the picture of what God is like. It says in Colossians 1, for God was so pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Jesus. And through Jesus to reconcile to himself all things, to hug back all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Then we have the Apostle John. 
The Apostle John, who works out of the assumption that God is fully revealed in Jesus, he arrives at the conclusion that God is love. That God is love. And so what I want you to know this morning is that God's attitude, God's spirit toward you is one of unwavering, fatherly, motherly love. Unwavering. And you have nothing to fear from God. God is not mad at you. God has never been mad at you. God is never going to be mad at you. And what you, you might ask, well, what about the fear of God? The fear of God is acting out of wisdom that says not to go against the grain of love. The wisdom of saying if not to go against this shalom, this love of God, that's the fear of God. And our own sin, if we do not turn away from it, it will bring us great harm. It'll bring others great harm. The wisdom that acknowledges this fact is what we call the fear of God. Sin is deadly, but God is love. In this conversation, I mean, I'm just going to, let me just read you guys a couple quotes from Tim Keller who passed away um, a little over a week ago. One of his most famous quotes is, cheer up. You're a worse sinner than you ever dared imagine. (laughs) And you're more loved than you ever dared hoped. And the hands of God have been stretched out in love where there is, They are nailed to a tree. The nail-pierced hands of God now reach out to every doubter, every sufferer, revealing his wounds of love to us. Tim Keller also said this. On the cross, Jesus was putting himself into our lives, our misery, our mortality, so we could be brought up into his life, his joy, and his immortality. And the hands of God are not hands of wrath, but hands of mercy. To be a sinner in these hands is where healing begins. We're actually sinners in the hands of a loving God. And the passage in Romans says this is the kindness of God that leads us to return, to turn our whole lives, turn our whole thought patterns. It says to, to lead us towards repentance. So, What is Paul beginning to communicate to these cluster of house churches as we wrap this up today? Well, it's a great bit of humility and compassion. The Roman house churches feel like they're living a version. I just, I'm just going to riff on this. I think this letter to the Roman house churches has so much in my mind to do with the story of the prodigal son. It's almost like you've got two sons. You got this one son, the weak, this group of Jewish followers of Jesus that think they're they're pretty special. And you got this other son that takes his inheritance and does whatever he wants with it and comes back into the loving arms of God. And the weak, the older son is like What the heck, bro? I've been here this whole time. I've been following Torah. 
I've been doing all the stuff. I haven't abandoned you. And you just let this guy back? And you give him a ring? And you throw a feast? And it's almost as if Paul is just bringing both sons to an understanding of how much they're loved by God and how much God has rescued them and how they have to live together as a family in the kingdom of God. If you want, I, 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 don't, I, I read a lot of books and I talk about a lot of books, but I, I want to encourage you, if you've never read, there's a book by a guy named Henri Henry Nouwen, The Return of the Prodigal. And it's a beautiful summer read for you to let you wrestle with the, the story of the prodigal son uh, through Rembrandt's painting of the story of the prodigal son. It's beautiful, it's powerful, it can, it can be a wonderful guide for your journey this summer. But the beginning of this letter to the church of Rome, to these house churches that are fighting or divisive, is Paul setting up the conversation about God, God's plan to rescue all of humanity through his people. And we're needing that rescue too. All the time. Let me pray. God, thank you for a chance to wrestle with our picture of who you are. Thank you for the chance to wrestle with a picture of who we are. That God, you love us so much that at times you just get out of our way. And you let us experience the pain of our own selves, of our own actions, of the things we tend to worship. And it's not your hope, it's not your wish for us, but your arms are wide open. As the story of the prodigal son shows us. And so God, this morning, would you just do work in us as we come to the table? God, we are more curious about who you are. And would you reveal yourself even more to us? Amen.